So last week we looked at the power story um, of Elijah on Mount Carmel, the big victory of uh, fire coming down from heaven and um, eating up the offering there, the people shouting, the Lord, he is God, rejecting Baal in that moment. And then that incredible moment of Elijah running ahead of the chariot um, of Ahab, ahead of the rain, all the way back um, to the city. And it's a story, as we looked at it, that we recognize that God has incredible power to work in this world. And, and it was a, a call for us to, to trust that God can do the things that we need to see happen in our world. Today, we're going to continue that story. And, and I'm sure you, you know this, but um, when a new chapter starts in the Bible, that was somebody a lot later than the original writing putting that 19 in there and starting a new chapter, right? A lot of these stories are actually just long, straight continuations, um, not, new, not new chapters. That was to help us look up passages. So the next chapter, one we just read, starts with Jezebel playing prophet. If you remember, if you listened last week, um, I said that what Elijah said at the beginning when he said it's not going to rain until, um, until the word comes from me, what he was doing was not waiting for God to tell him what to say and then saying it, which is what we expect prophets to do. He was saying, look, this is what I see going on. This is what I believe. And so I'm calling on God to act according to what he had promised. And that promise was given in Deuteronomy 11. Well, now I want to suggest to you that Jezebel is playing prophet, if you will. Because Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and she says this. May the gods, her gods, Ashtoreth, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make, the, make your life like one of them. She takes an oath. She calls on her gods. She says, this is what I trust is going to have to happen um, based on what you did. It's another power play, if you will. Now, was this the response that you expected? If you come out of a story where Elijah doesn't wait for God to tell him what's going to happen, but actually tells God this is what's supposed to happen, where Elijah calls all the different prophets there and says, look, we're going to have a, we're going to have a standoff, and I'm going to call down fire from God, where he taunts the other gods, right, where he wins the victory because God sends the fire, where he runs ahead of this chariot, where he does all that running up and down the mountain that we looked at. Wouldn't you think that right after that, when his life is threatened, he'd go, no. God's on my side. God sent fire. God will protect me. And wouldn't you expect that the people who were witnessing what happened in chapter 18 and had said, the Lord, he's our God. The Lord, he's our God. Well, don't you think they would have said, Elijah, you don't got to run. We've got this. God's got this. We're going to be okay. But Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. One of the most striking things to me about this story is the fact that that incredible story, which is in most Sunday school curriculum because we love to see the power of God show, coming down with fire and, and showing who he is, didn't really work. It didn't really work. It did show God's power. We have held on to this story and we celebrate it, but the people's response in that moment of power didn't last through the next push back. 
And so that is why today, that's why I encouraged you last week, if you saw the message last week, to also listen to this one, because along with recognizing and celebrating God's incredible intense ability to do whatever he needs to do in this world, we also need to be deeply aware of his quiet power. So as we go through the story, I want to point out some of the details and help you understand. And at the end, I will talk about a few ways in which we can apply this and be engaged in it. And the first thing I want to talk about is Elijah's Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane was the garden where Jesus went to pray right before he was um, put on the cross, before he was crucified. And when Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, take this burden from me, take this task from me because it's too heavy for me, but not my will but yours be done, says Jesus. Here, Elijah, when he comes to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there, exactly like Jesus did. He went off himself. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He went a little farther. He came to a broom bush. He sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. Right? I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Jesus prayed, your will be done. Elijah said, I can't do it, right? And I want to suggest to you that, first of all, we probably need to own that most of us can do the Elijah thing a lot better than the Jesus thing. That part of our journey is recognizing that as human beings, we come to a place where we go, this just simply isn't working. If you think about how church functions today and all the transitions that we've needed to make and all the questions we have about how will we come back and what will it look like moving forward, there's a lot of space right now as God's people to go, Lord, I've had enough of trying to make this thing happen. If you think about the tensions that happen in all kinds of churches, some of the difficult conversations we're going to have to have moving forward, it's easy to say, God, I'm done. I'm spent. I don't need to do this anymore. How about I just step out of the way and let things go where they're going to go? That was Elijah's moment. I think many of us can experience those moments along the way as well. This, by the way, is a broom tree. That's not Elijah. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So I was quite surprised when we were in Israel to find out that this is the kind of tree that they regularly slept under in the desert to find shade. And there's a simple reason for that, of course. That's the shade you're going to find in the desert. You can imagine, maybe you can imagine, you can sort of see around Ruthanna as she's sitting there that it truly is desert. It's sand and rock, right? It's hot. It's extremely dry. And so just that little bit of shade, it's quite amazing. If you sit under this broom tree, which looks pretty dead, it is actually alive, you actually feel cooler. You feel that shade. It's not quite an oak or a maple or something like we would experience, right? But it actually gives you that little gift of cooling. And by the way, this is sort of a sideline, but the message I learned over and over again in Israel is we are, we are used to green pastures and, and quiet waters and the fullness of all that we have in our very abundant land. But most of the Bible messages were written in the kind of context you see in that picture where it's not much shade, not much water, right? And God's provision is needed and expected because it's just enough and often then just in time. Elijah took his sleep under that broom tree. Then God ministers to him in his need. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. 
And he ate and drank, and then he lay down again. And I love this moment. Um, this is a very Mountain View moment in my mind because I've heard from a number of folks who've gone through or are going through difficult circumstances that you get a lot of meals when that happens to you around here. You guys are amazing at providing food and drink. You are angels in the same way as mentioned in this passage. If somebody has a need, we minister to them, and one of the things we do is we minister to their physical needs. That's a godly thing to do, right? The first thing God does with Elijah is not talk to him, but simply show up and give him what exactly what he needs in order to take that next step. And I love the fact, by the way, that he eats, he drinks, and he goes right back to sleep again, right? And if you're sick, that's actually a pretty good pattern. It strikes me, I, I've done a number of silent retreats, and um, one of the questions you often have on a silent retreat is what exactly am I supposed to be doing with all this quiet time? And one of the things that often happens is you start your first session, you start reading your devotional or your Bible or whatever you're going to work through, and you fall asleep. And if you're wired like me, you feel horrible about that. You think, God gave me this time. I should be accomplishing something. So I asked my spiritual director about that, and she said this. You fell asleep because God knew you were tired and you needed to rest. God understands our limited ability to hang on to all the things that are part of our lives. And sometimes he just simply says, the first thing you need is just stop and rest. That's that Sabbath conversation again. Recognize our need to just let God minister to us and replenish us. So what journey is this? What does this remind you of? The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched Elijah and said, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this connects with a number of other biblical stories. And if I tell you, if you've been part of church and church stories for a long time, if I tell you that Horeb is also Mount Sinai, that might give it away that this is actually a very similar journey to the entire nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, being fed as they went through the desert. Manna and water were provided for them and going to Mount Sinai to be established as God's people at the mountain of God at Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments. Elijah is retracing that journey, and, and that suggests to me that what he's doing is he's kind of doing a, a, a restart. He's going back to the place where Israel was formed. God, when he gave the commandments, he said, this is what's going to shape who you are as my people. And he gave them the, the temple as well. This is going to shape how you worship me. And here he's saying to Elijah, you're going to go back. All right, I'm going to feed you enough that you can go for 40 days and 40 nights on a journey and receive again that restart. And if you know the story of Jesus, he started his ministry in this way. The Holy Spirit, Luke 4 tells us, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into um, the desert and actually says to be tempted by the devil. He gets sent into that place of challenge and of temptation that is the desert. And it's also that 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus relived what both Moses and the Israelites and Elijah had to do, and Jesus did it again um, in our place as our representative. Elijah's leading one of those um, history-shaping kind of journeys there. And then when he's there, I call this naming your reality, the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. God, I've been working really hard for you. And I know 
we have that sort of mentality too sometimes. I've, I've heard us say those kinds of things. I've heard me say that kind of thing. God, I'm putting in my time for you, and I'm not seeing the kind of results that I expect. Right? And it's, it's, it's a strange kind of conversation we have because we kind of know, right, that it's God's world, it's his church, and it's his grace that leads it. But we're pretty sure that when we put in our effort, he should probably respond in the way that we expect, right? And there's a funny dynamic. So I certainly don't want to say, don't call out to God and say, look, I've been working really hard, I don't get what's going on. Be honest in your prayer. But also recognize that, actually, as PJ prayed, this is about worshiping God, not about getting what we expect to happen, right? And this is, this is one of the tough parts of that journey. Elijah carries on, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, They've broken the relationship with you. They've torn down your altars. They've undermined the worship. And they've put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And I pointed out last week, and I'm going to point it out again, I'm not sure where Elijah gets his count from. I think he's speaking emotionally here because there were um, 100 prophets that were saved by Obadiah. At the end of this passage, we're going to learn about 7,000 people who haven't bent the knee. Elijah is not by himself, but that probably doesn't matter here. What really we need to hang on to is he feels like he's all alone. He feels like he's all alone. He feels like nobody understands him. And maybe you understand that. Maybe you've had that feeling too where you're passionate about something, you're working on something, and it feels like everybody else doesn't really seem to care about that. Name your reality. Be honest about what's going on for you. So then here's the expected power. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. We love it when something happens with power because that's when we know something's actually going on. We like events that we would say, boy, that just blew me away, the wind. We like to say, I don't know if everyone says this anymore, but man, that rocks. That's an earthquake. Or we like to say, she was on fire. That's the fire, right? We like events, we like worship events, let's just say it right there, where we walk away and go, man, that was powerful. And God bless us in that. There's power in those things. There's moments when we need to recognize, yes, God is speaking in power. But this story wants to teach us that sometimes all those things that we really like and enjoy and recognize are not where God is speaking in this moment. How about the gentle call? After the fire came, a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He covered up because he knew he was in the presence of God and that when he went out there, he would not be able to stand unless he had covered his face. And he stood at the mouth of the cave and a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Have you ever noticed how a conversation changes if you ask a question in a gentle whisper? How it tones all the tension down and if you think about the story of Elijah and the person of Elijah and all that we've looked at Elijah in the last couple of weeks, Elijah was a ramped up type A, all in kind of person going 100 miles an hour. And God says to him, what are you doing here? What's going on? 
What's your story? God needs to remind us every once in a while that it's not just in his power that things change, but sometimes in that still, small question. And it's just a question. By the way, Elijah answers with the exact same words as he said the first time. That's his story, and he's sticking to it. He repeats that. I don't have it on the screen. But then this is God's response to him. He gives him a new anointing. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you go there, anoint Hazael, and then anoint Jehu, and then anoint Elisha. I thought Matt did a great job pronouncing all the other names, so I'll just stick with that pronunciation. Thank you, Matt. The message that Elijah receives in his moment of fatigue and frustration from the still small voice of God is I'm going to anoint the next person to take over for you. I'm going to pass on what you've been doing to the next person. And isn't that really God's main message for all of us all the time? There was a Mike Breen quote on the screen before the service. Um, yeah, and I won't remember it exactly, of course, now, that basically said to be a follower of Jesus is to be somebody who is making disciples. To be someone who follows Jesus is to be somebody who is anointing the next person in line and wondering how do I pass on this story. To be a follower of Jesus is someone who listens carefully to the still small voice of God and then says, what do I need to whisper to somebody else? How do I need to touch somebody else's life? The summary of this story in my mind looks like this. We look for the big display, but often a gentle nudge helps us hear and pass on the real gifts of God. This week, um, I had the privilege of participating in something that I would say would normally be called power ministry, great power ministry. Um, I was the second for somebody who was praying for deliverance for somebody, and indeed, um, through the time of prayer, the person was, was set free. They had been experiencing, um, they had experienced horrible trauma in their life and had experienced demonic interference and they were set free. And what struck me the entire time, I was basically sitting there praying quietly. I was just there as moral support, if you will. And as I watched this, what really struck me is the person leading was mostly using the still, small, gentle voice of God instead of some rush of power. In my world, I like it when God moves quickly and powerfully and where people have radical conversions and where they move from not understanding the truth to suddenly understanding the truth and we go, wow, that is amazing and we can tell that story. The story of what happened on Monday, I just got to come in at the last second, which maybe this person knew that's my favorite part to come in. This story had taken, I think, five or six years of ongoing prayer and conversation to arrive where it did. And it was a whole bunch of still, small, gentle voices that brought this person to exactly where God needed them to be. It doesn't mean God doesn't do radical conversions. It doesn't mean God doesn't do amazing healing miracles in our lives. It certainly doesn't mean we should stop praying for any of those things. But recognize, even with a radical conversion, the rest of the story is keep listening to the Word, keep listening to each other, keep listening to what God is saying to you, that you can take that wonderful, long, slow journey with God of discipleship, of growing in Him. I feel it in, in this context. 
right? We want to hear sermons that affect us so that we can walk out and say he was on fire and that was powerful and all those kinds of things. But I'm quite convinced after all these years of preaching that the most important part of your spiritual journey is not how well I can do this or even how powerful this experience is, is for you. It's really about what is the still, small voice of God? What is your regular conversation with God, especially the listening part of it, and what are you hearing God say? Do you take time to be silent and quiet and still to Sabbath, to truly rest in Christ every day with a pattern in such a way that you have a chance to hear from God? Um, if any of you invite me to do this, I will. I would love to lead a silent retreat sometime. And we will do one day, say from 8 till 5, the easiest retreat in the world for me to lead because we'll also be fasting. So this is how I organize the retreat. Come, and I will say, be quiet and don't eat anything. And at the end I'll say, how was that? So that's my job. Your job is to say, I would like to spend some time, and my life doesn't usually allow it, so I would like to come out and just spend time letting God speak to me. Um, as I mentioned, I, I've done this. I've done eight-day silent retreats. Um, God does... God does show up. Uh, my question was, what do I need to do to make this happen? What's my busy activity? And God's answer, of course, was, actually, just be quiet, Eric. Just be quiet. Just be. And in his time, in his way, I was really looking for a rushing wind, I'll, I'll admit it. I would have loved an earthquake. But it was seeing a tree and just being overwhelmed by the history that was clearly projected in that tree. It was just sitting quietly with God and letting a word come to my mind. It was the dreams that woke me up in the middle of the night. It was the things that God whispered to me that I wasn't actually looking for, right? Because you see, part of the power thing, part of the thing that Elijah did in the last passage was he said, God, this is what you need to do for me because I expect that this is going to happen. And God's more powerful way his quiet, powerful way of touching us is to say, no, how about you just be still, and when you least expect it, like when you're sleeping, I will speak to you, and I'll grab your attention, and I'll give you something to chew on, right? We sometimes boil down our faith to we need to do the right things, and we need to do them in order. We need to be here, and we need to sing these songs. We need to do these things, because that's how God works. But let's be really careful that we don't control how we think God is going to function. And sometimes it's more about saying, God, I'm just going to give you my time, myself, my body. I'm going to surrender myself to you. In fact, I've done this a few times with folks, and I remember with one person, the, uh, sorry, camera guy, you're going to have to move your camera, I think. Um, somebody said, as I was praying, I heard God say, lie down, um, prostrate before me. And so I said, being the really bright leader that I am, maybe you should just do that since God told you to do that. And they said, no, I don't really want to do that. And I said, I understand that. That's why I'm suggesting you just do that. And imagine how much you want to do this in public. But this is what it really means to pray and worship God. It's incredibly relaxing, by the way. The floor's a little hard. But it's a surrender. Right? You surrender your body by not holding it up in any particular posture. 
you surrender your pride because you do that in a public space. And there's something about that moment where we actually let God lead the process that everything changes. And I believe that if we are to anoint a next generation of believers, not necessarily our children, but the next generation of whoever it is we meet along the way, it's not going to be because we've done such powerful things and we run such a great church and ministry and do such powerful worship. It's going to be because God's still quiet voice has spoken to our hearts and we don't even need to tell people about it. They can sense it. So I encourage you, take that Sabbath gift of time and give it back to God and listen to what he says and wonder and pay attention. How is he shaping my heart quietly day by day? Let's pray. Jesus, we offer ourselves to you. And Jesus, that's often hard because we know you're in control and we've seen your power and we often want to lean in that direction. But we just pray that as you have spoken to us this morning, you'll also guide us to places and opportunities where we can spend time with you and simply let you feed us and minister to us and speak in your still, small voice. We pray in your holy name. Amen.